Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Can I Borrow Your Mind? My name's Louis Garnham and my guest this week is Antoinette Latouf. Antoinette is a journalist. She's an award-winning journalist who is currently a senior reporter at Network 10. She's worked on things like, this is quite an impressive list, she's worked on things like Media Watch, ABC News and Current Affairs, 10 Eyewitness News, 10 Daily, Studio 10, Hack on Triple J, SBS Insight and SBS World News. Um, I just feel like... If you don't know who Antoinette is, I, I saw her on Q&A recently and she's the co-founder of Media Diversity Australia. She's a really impressive journalist who's worked on all those impressive shows that I just told you about then. And I feel like she's someone who, you know, certain people, they find what they're good at, they do what they're good at, and then they pour all their energy into trying to make that part of what the, the world that they're in better and in in doing that make the world better um i feel like antoinette is doing that and yeah i just think it's really impressive she media diversity australia um of which she's a co-founder have just come out with this huge report called who gets to tell australian stories and yeah it's it's online you can have a look at it and it's you know it's pretty damning about um I guess Australia's whitewashed media landscape. They found that obviously a lot of the people that we see on our screens are white, a disproportionate amount are white, and also importantly, the people who make decisions, who sit in offices around the country and have discussions about the news and about what will be on the screens, they are overwhelmingly white men. Uh, so yeah, that, that I saw... Antoinette on Q&A recently talking about this report and I thought that I found it really interesting what she was talking about and I thought that she would be a great guest for this podcast and I was not wrong. <laughs> she speaks so well. I've watched a lot of her interviews, listened to a lot of her interviews online. I recommend doing that and yeah, enjoy this chat. I think it's a really good one and a really, really important one. We talk about some stuff that I think is really important. I recorded this podcast on the lands of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging and recognize that sovereignty was never ceded in this country. I feel like that's a, a particularly important time to say that, what I just said then, uh, today on a day when... The, uh, yesterday, sorry, not today, yesterday, um, a really significant, again, I feel like this happens so regularly at the moment, a, a directions tree in Victoria that is hugely significant to Indigenous people has been cut down by the Dan Andrews government. Just cut it down. Yeah, fuck it. Should we just cut it down? Yeah, we'll just cut it down. It's just like... <laughs> You know, and the mining companies, they just, Rio Tinto just, just bombs sacred indigenous sites. And and then like people, like for example, the Dan Andrews government, like they sit around and chat about, yeah, diversity and inclusion and reconciliation. Yeah, we're, yeah, you know, we're doing our best. We're going to close the gap. What hypocrisy, what absolute trash. And yeah, I think this conversation with Antoinette is is in a lot of ways related to, to that, um, we touch on some of that sort of stuff and the problems of Australia 
And a lot of that does have to do with our media landscape. So yeah, enjoy this conversation. Have a good day and subscribe to the podcast if you enjoy it. I'll see you next week. This is episode 10 of Can I Borrow Your Mind with Antoinette Latouf. Enjoy. See ya. Antoinette Latouf, thank you so much for joining me on Can I Borrow Your Mind? Um, I saw you recently on Q&A and I wanted to get in touch with you. After watching you on Q&A, I actually listened to a bunch of your interviews and I thought that you would be such a perfect guest on this podcast because you speak so eloquently and in such a compelling way about diversity in the media and I think it's such an important thing. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No worries. Um, I wanted to ask firstly how you got into journalism and what made you decide that you wanted to be a journalist, I suppose. Yeah, so I guess my journey comes a little bit full circle because we're going to talk about the diversity stuff later. Um, But my interest was from a really young age, probably in primary school. So my parents came to Australia as uh, as refugees from the Middle East, civil war refugees. And I was always fascinated um, by their experience uh, and fascinated in, in, in politics um, and, uh, you know, economic empowerment and, you know, through what I learned about them and through what we experienced um, being very working class and trying to find our place um, in a Western country, I just didn't see enough stories that resonated with my experience or my parents' experience from a young age. Um, and so I just thought, oh, well, if my parents have such a powerful story to tell, like, I'm, like I think I'm 10 years old at this stage, um, there must be so many other people who have stories to tell that are different to, you know, home and away in Summer Bay and surfing and beaching and, and, and blonde people and snags on the barbecue. Um, so, yeah, it, it was born out of a real in, intense interest in my parents journey and uh, my culture growing up um, that I decided that these sorts of stories weren't being told and that I would like to be the one to tell them. Yeah. And then is that also, I mean, that, that, that makes sense. And that also sort of um, points in the direction of Media Diversity Australia, which I understand that you're a co-founder of. Is that sort of the same reasons that led you to yeah, that, I mean, organization? that happened. That happened a long time later. So, uh, so I initially went into journalism thinking, "Are oh, there sto- there's stories to tell? I want a platform." Um, I was in Year Twelve when September Eleven happened, um, and there was a lot of coverage about Arabs and Muslims and people from the Middle East. And then Cronulla riots happened a few years later, um, and there was a lot of really racist, divisive, inflammatory reporting. Um, and I just thought it's really unfair to have you know, a panel of white blokes constantly talking at us and about us um, and us never being part of the discussion. And that's not to say I wanted to be an apologist and go in and and defend horrendous behaviour when it happens. But as we all know, horrendous behaviour can happen amongst a lot of communities and more horrendous behaviour occurs if there's a lot of really racial, you know, racialized, divisive reporting, stereotyping and marginalising and then the wheel, it just keeps perpetuating yep. this, this horrible cycle that I just thought, well, enough. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's why I originally got into it. And then 15 years into my career, I just thought, well, it's 
the faces telling our stories haven't changed. Yes, they may be me and Walid Ali and, you know, people would say, oh, what about Lee Lin Chin? There'd be a handful of people. Um, but I thought within 15 years, things haven't changed. Um, and so I think there needs to be a more concerted effort for that change to occur. Um, I want to talk more about Media Diversity Australia and um, the recent report, Who Gets to Tell Australian Stories. But what you've just said there um, kind of leads me into this big question that I really wanted to ask you. I, I think that, yeah, as, as someone who, you know, has refugee parents and has so much experience and knowledge about the Australian media, I think you're perfectly placed to answer this. So this is a bit of a long-winded big question because I want to I want to put some context in there. So it's a little bit of a rant, but um, sure. basically when I was in high school, my, my experience um, from high school, I remember one day during like a society and culture class in year 11 or something, the teacher wrote on the board, uh, Australia is a racist country and then split the class in half and half of us had to argue for the affirmative and half of us had to argue for the negative and I had to argue for the affirmative and I remember thinking at the time like wow I'm, I'm glad that I'm not arguing for the negative because I would find it quite difficult to argue for the negative um, I think that Australia is a racist country. I, th I thought it then and I, I think it now. And I don't think that everyone in Australia is racist, obviously. But I think, in my opinion, I think that there's sort of this vein of omnipresent racism that runs through Australian culture and Australian society. And I think that it, it lays dormant a lot of the time and then it, it presents itself in quite dramatic fashion in certain moments. For example, the booing of Adam Goods and the, the treatment of him by the Australian public and the Australian media, or the treatment of Yasmin Abdel Magid by the media and also by the public, um, which eventually forced her to basically flee the country, I understand, like amidst all these death threats and just horrible things being said about her. I, I really wonder what you think about this. I think that the lack of diversity in the Australian media and also not just the lack of diversity, but the fact that people like Sam Newman and Andrew Bolt are able to have such illustrious careers in the media. Mm -hmm. I think that that's reflective of this vein of racism. Um, I read, I read a, article by New Matilda recently and it said that they were detailing a report that the Murdoch press in 2017 ran 2,891 stories that uh, painted Muslim people or Islam in general in a negative light um, and Fairfax wasn't that far behind. I think they ran roughly a thousand which is still more than two a day. I'm wondering yeah, I think you're very well placed to answer this. Do you think that Australia is a racist country? And if so, do you think that these things, like, for example, all those stories by the Murdoch press, are they reflective of the racism that runs through Australian society? Or are they actually themselves causing the racism? Um, there's so much to unpack there. I think I, I start off by saying we have to acknowledge that Australia as a country, its very inception was on racist grounds. Our treatment of Indigenous people, policies essentially to wipe them out, either through um, either through the you know the white Australian policy, the the Stolen Generation, or just killing them. Um, that 
shows that our Australian history is deeply rooted um, in racism and that we've never reconciled our treatment of First Australians. And until we do that, and I, I don't have the answers as to how we do that, uh, but that's the foundation by which this country was built. Um, and so although many people would say we are a picture of success when it comes to multiculturalism, we're one of the most multicultural countries in the world. Statistically, yes, we are. Are there things to be proud of? Yes, there are. But that doesn't mean we're perfect. That doesn't mean we shouldn't reflect and improve. So if you look at Canada, Canada's probably a country where they have uh, about the similar cultural makeup in terms of just how many immigrants um, and people of non-European backgrounds they have in the country. Their, their treatment of Indigenous people and their representation of diverse people in the media is far better than Australia's. So yes, we can celebrate multiculturalism, but that doesn't mean we just hang our boots up and say, hey guys, a job well done, let's have a pat on the back. Um, in terms of your second question about, so yes, we do have racism. Um, it's often casual racism hidden by humour. It's institutionalised racism um, against Indigenous people, Muslim people, and now um, Asians or people with an Asian background or Asian Australians. Um, and does the lack of media diversity contribute to it? Absolutely, yes. If we continue to have panels with Sam Newman and Prue McSween and, 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 and Andrew Bolt, and we just give them a platform, an unchallenged platform, to continue to spew misinformation, hate and division. It's absolutely a problem. And it's not just a problem of the Murdoch press, you know, the ABC, and I called the ABC out when I was on Q&A, the day after Black Lives Matter, they didn't have an Indigenous person on the panel. Um, wow. We still do seem to respect and elevate expertise unless it's a white bloke or now because of gender diversity, a white woman. Um, and so again, while I applaud that we have more gender diversity, you cannot have a Black Lives Matter dissecting discussion without a black person. Yeah. It seems so obvious and ludicrous that it continues to occur. And yes, the ABC owned it the next day, they, you know, the next week, they said, you know, we, we've got to do better. But it's those blind spots that happened in newsrooms when there's no diversity. Because it wasn't David Spears' fault. It wasn't the other panellists' fault. It wasn't just the EP's fault. There have so many people in that decision-making process that didn't think that that was a problem. Mm. And that, for me, speaks to the, the magnitude of the blind spots we have in our newsrooms. And then, of course, you talk about illustrious careers. We have Alan Jones, who was found to incite and encourage violence in the Cronulla riots. He went on to get promotions and have an yeah. even better career and a bigger audience. It's really problematic. So again, then, then what's, the, what's the answer? Well, when you look at the leadership, and that's something we did in our study, when you looked at the leadership of television in television news and current affairs, every single news director was an Anglo male. So let's say Sam Newman's out of line or Alan Joins is out of line in the, or Prue McSween is out of line when she's on Channel 7. There's a whole bunch of complaints and there's about three or four dudes sitting around going, did you think that was racist? Did you think that was problematic? And unsurprisingly, they often come to the same conclusion that it was fine because they haven't, they don't have lived experience, they don't have empathy and they don't have, uh, they, they don't have a diverse background. So until leadership changes, because really they're the ones who make or break careers and make calls, um, we're not really going to see those held to account. Then, of course, there's the argument that Murdoch Press's essential business model is division and racism. Um, Where do you stand on that argument? Look, I mean, it's an easy thing to say, but I also know some really good journalists that work for Murdoch Press. Yeah. Uh, 
but I think it's better than bigger than any one good journalist. It's bigger than any one solid editor. Um, I think the fact that they have um, so much power in the, their concentration of media ownership makes their influence. Um, damaging and concerning, and that's greater than the sum of all journos who, even if they aren't racist and even if they try and do their best. Yeah. Um, so I would say that, you know, um, a lot of the reporting around coronavirus, um, about, uh, China, uh, you know, Asian Australians, um, and a lot of the reporting um, around Muslims and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, it has been really damaging, divisive, unfair, and often just untrue. Um, so there was a report that came out by All Together Now just yesterday, and it looked at opinion pieces um, from 2019 to 2020, in, from April, April to April, and looked at opinion pieces, and it had a look at which they found to be racially charged and divisive. And of those, about more than half were found to be ra racially divisive. But of those more than half, um, nearly 90% were authored by an Anglo or non-European. Wow. Um, so that evidence, I mean, forget what I think. This, is, this has been a really comprehensive study in partnership with the University of Technology, Sydney. And so they found that they made the direct correlation between really divisive, um, inflammatory opinion pieces and the background of the author. So yeah. it's hard to ignore that the two are, the two are related. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think I think they they totally are. Um, hey, have you just on the Murdoch stuff? Um, I saw that uh, Kevin Rudd posted this video about um starting a petition to to try and enable the Murdoch media to not have such just such a, a monopoly on on the media in us in Australia. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you yeah, think it's undemocratic? How much? How much? Yeah, I absolutely do. When our media, our media rules have been relaxed twice in the past, uh, very seriously relaxed twice in the past 10 years. Um, and what we've seen then is a real concentration of ownership, both amongst um, the Murdoch press um, and now Nine Fairfax, even though they're nowhere near as much as Murdoch. Look, I've always argued the more media voices, and when I talk about media diversity, yes, I'm talking about the cultural background of journos, but diversity of outlets, it can only be better reporting. So, for example, this is how it plays out. Yesterday, I was covering a crime story in Western Sydney. There was one local reporter there. She worked for the local paper. That whole area, which is quite a large geographic area in Western Sydney, now only has one local paper, a Murdoch paper. The Fairfax paper shut down. It wasn't sustainable. I mean, that's another discussion. We'll have a discussion about Google and Facebook a bit later. Um, she was trying to cover this story. She's the only reporter attached to that newspaper covering everything that happens in this large Western Sydney LGA. You cannot tell me that having one reporter, no matter how good she is, yeah. is problematic. So she was at this court case because she decided that this court case, well, what about all the other court cases? Mm. What about local businesses? What about what local council might be doing? What about developers maybe getting in bed with council? All of this is completely going unchecked. Mm. Um, and it's based on what one newspaper editor tells their one journal to do. Um, and that's why a lack of diverse outlets is problematic. Even she said, I really enjoyed it when there was another local paper because we competed, we shared ideas, we, we covered different stories. Um, so the audience gets better and a, a range of local news. And that's what's really missing. Um, so, yeah, it's absolutely a problem. But I also think it's a problem that Kevin Rudd is spearheading this. He's a really can be quite a problematic and divisive character himself. Um, 
some would argue, well, this is my personal opinion, he wasn't an especially effective leader. He did some good things. And it may just get some people offside who are not Labor voters. Um, yeah. even, they, even though they may have a problem with concentrated press and um, and the way we're seeing, um, you know, headlines which read as absolute garbage opinions on front pages of newspapers, um, but they won't necessarily sign up to the cause because they think he's a bit of a weirdo or they don't like, they don't rate Labor. So I just think he's a problem to be spearheading it. I agree. Yeah, that's actually, that's actually what I thought when I watched his video. I thought this is, you know, I think this is really important, but it's... Um, it's a bit of a shame that you're the one. Yes. Agree. <laughs> yeah. Agree. Um, so, okay. Yeah, there's, there's a lot I want to talk about now. Um, but in relation to the Fairfax paper shutting down in Western Sydney or, or not having the, the, the local paper not being able to run, is that... Um, would you say you sort of touched on it there? Is that a direct result of the new age of media and, and Google and Facebook? Yeah. So that's bigger that, you know, the advent or the, the real rise of Facebook from say 2007 um, has had a huge, a huge impact on the way we consume our news. Uh, Perhaps not so much for uh, people age 60 and older. They still have traditional um, viewership patterns. They still like to read a paper. They still watch free-to-air television. But we know anybody under under that age, um, and I'm sure you do, Lewis, we get these uh, on social media. We get articles shared in WhatsApp groups. The way we interact with technology and news is no longer linear. Um, and that's been something the industry has grappled with um, since the uptake of smartphones um, and the growth of social media. Um, so I guess that's, that's, one, that's one issue. Um, so, yeah, not having diversity in that region is problematic, but it's, it's bigger than just Murdoch. Um, the problem is that advertising dollars are no longer in your local paper. So your local business isn't necessarily advertising in your local paper, your Harvey Normans or your Audi, because they know that eyeballs are online. And where are we mainly online? We're mainly on Google and on Facebook. Mm. Um, so many people get their news just from their Facebook feeds. That's where they get, or they get an alert from their, from their iPhone or their smartphone, um, which is not powered, which is not curated by a newspaper or a media outlet necessarily. Um, it's curated by the social media platform or the tech or the tech company. So that means the advertising dollars are now being poured into Facebook. They're being poured into Google, but they're not creating any content. They're not employing journalists. Yeah. They're not out there at that court story where that Western Sydney reporter was. Yeah. Uh, they're not interviewing people. They're not sitting in council meetings. They're not pouring over freedom of information and trying to hold our government to account. So there's a, there's a real crisis in the funding and the sustainability of news as a business. Personally, as a journalist, how has this crisis that we're sort of living in, in, in journalism, how has it affected you and, and your work? Like, has, has your life changed a lot in terms of, yeah. like on Channel 10, the work yeah, that honest, you're doing, has it changed? Yeah, so I used to work for, I was part of the team that helped launch 10 Daily, which was the digital arm. Um, and it was a really, it was a great space. So we covered news with a bit of quirk. We had a lot of opinion pieces by independent or emerging writers. Um, we covered content kind of, I, I guess, to the tune of the project, like news with benefits, like news with a, with a yeah. twist. Um, but we weren't able to find... Um, to make it fiscally rewarding. Um, so without a sustainable business model, um, it ended up 
being shut down. And that was a decision that came from um, Channel 10's owners in the United States, CBS, a broadcaster there. But what we did know that around 87% of our clicks for our stories came via Facebook. Wow. So we were literally almost entirely reliant on Facebook. Now, and for our traffic. Yeah. This, this kind of. They're not paying my wage. They're not paying the editor. Totally. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's uh, for me, that's scary on a number of levels. And one of the levels that it's scary on, I don't know if you've watched this, but I assume a lot of people have watched it. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen it? I have. And I've changed my behavior because of it. So have I. I've I've deactivated my Instagram. I'm going to go back on in a while, but for a couple of weeks, I'm taking a break. Yeah. Yeah, It just feels it, 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 it's scary how addicted I am, but separate from, so there were two things about that documentary that really scared me. One of them is how addicted we all are to our devices. And the other thing is you've sort of touched on it there. The, um, the fact that, people are getting all their news from Facebook and from algorithms. How do you feel about that in terms of, do you think that that is making, yeah. So once upon a time, let's talk about the newspaper. Once upon a time, the front page was the most important story of the day. And that was determined by a team of trained journalists. There was a pecking order. There was an editor, there were news values. So for example, um, you know, Scott Morrison getting COVID or a, a big ICAC investigation into this. So we deemed what was newsworthy and in the public interest. And that's what went on the front page. Right now, when you open your phone and you go through your phone, the first news story that comes up has not been curated by a journalist, may not be from a reputable source, depending on who you follow, and is very likely to just be what you already read and like. So it's confirmation bias. It's reaffirming that vaccines shouldn't be trusted, for one example. I don't believe that um, for anyone listening. But, for example, say you've started Googling or you've joined a couple of vaccine, anti-vaxxer group or you're just a bit curious. You're not a full whack job anti-vaxxer um, and I probably will be trolled for calling them whack job anti-vaxxers. <laughs> but you've looked up Pete Evans, you know, so you're a little bit yeah. curious, which is fine. It is fine to be curious. And I think it's important to ask questions. But then all of a sudden, all the articles you're presented are opinion articles by one mum who lives in Arizona, who's, you know, absolutely sure. And then you see a video by somebody who, you know, a trader who's filmed it in his car, because all of a sudden, that's the picture of authority. We're seeing more and more of these, you know, selfie yeah. videos, of people purporting to have the truth. And then that happens time and time again. And whether that be, you know, uh, racist or dangerously in, um, inaccurate when it comes to science or medicine or politically divisive, it's really damaging. Then all of a sudden, all you're seeing is that Muslims are bad, Muslims are bad, Muslims are bad, Um, vaccinations are bad, you know, like, and you're just continuing to be polarised and only fed a select, um, a really unrepresentative and often not reliable source of information. And that is hugely problematic to our craft as journalists, but also to the greater good of people and their minds and the way they treat each other and and what it is they believe and who they believe. Do you have any, um, this is very hard to answer, I think, but do you have any predictions about the future of journalism, about the future of what you're talking about and about the future of this polarisation and our own minds and I guess society as a whole? What do you predict is going to happen in the next 20 years or so? Um, well, if things don't change, I think we are going to be more divided. I think you'll see United States 
uh, probably go into a full, you know fully fledged civil war. Yeah. Um, I think I, I just think we're going to be more addicted to our phones, less informed, more angry. There was a study that Harvard did about a year ago, and it was really fascinating. They took about I think it was about a dozen people, and they took them off social media entirely. And then they, so they, they sampled their views on a range of topics and their views on their mental well-being and their happiness in their relationships. And then after a certain period, it was quite an extended period, they checked in again. What they found was that, they, yes, they were less informed because they weren't, you know, scrolling through, having a look at the US election or whatever it was. They were less informed. They were less polarised. So they were more willing to listen. And we, as we know, life is a lot more grey than it is black and white. They were happier, their mental well-being was happier, and they were spending more time with friends and family. So we know that the more time we spend there, more, the more damaging it is. Yet everything is pushing us towards that. So there needs to be a couple of things. The tech companies need to take some responsibility. I mean, it's hard because it's in their financial interest to keep you attached to it. And where that lacks, I think the, you know, there needs to be some government intervention. And the Australian government is trying to do that by uh, making Facebook and Google pay media outlets um, that has been tried in the uh, in parts of Europe and backfired I think it's somewhere in um, I think it's in France Google just said fine we will not show any French outlets when someone Googles uh, let's say like <sighs> Paris COVID so, so say you Google Paris Google, Google News no Paris app news outlet or French news outlet will come up in the search. Wow. <laughs> they have so uh, much power. They have so much power. <laughs> so all of a sudden, if you yeah. rely on Google News, you will not get any French news about oh my France. God. <laughs> um, and so we've not seen it done successfully, legislated successfully yet. But, um, you know, he's hoping um, our government will have some luck. So, yeah, and then there, there, there's a role of the individual. Like you said, Lewis, you've made some changes. I think people need to take a you know, a good hard look at themselves and try and set parameters. Like I, I went, and I'm not that techie, but I, our social media editor at work, I said, okay, what can I do? She's like, okay, turn off your, uh, turn off your voice recorder. You, you don't realize, but you're allowing your micro microphone and a whole bunch of um, apps. Why does Coles need to have, have access to your microphone? Right. Um, and so, you know, she helped me turn off notifications for X, Y, and Z. Do you need location for this? Do you need microphones for this? Do you, you know, and so she just helped me manage to take a little bit of control back. Yeah. So I think it's it's up to us as users to um, to equip ourselves with a bit of knowledge and take what steps we can. You know, it's not possible that not everybody's going to delete Instagram and Facebook forever. Yeah, There are some great things that come from it. Um, so what can we do to ensure that it doesn't, run our lives, run our minds, and essentially, like, run elections. And, yeah. You know, you know um, it's, it's really frightening. Um, on elections, uh, how have you seen... I don't really know much about this, but you hear a lot about, um, I guess, the way that Donald Trump has changed the media landscape. Um, and I don't really know much ab about the way he's done it but obviously you know by by you know saying that th this and that is fake news and etc he has changed the media can you maybe inform me a little bit about that because i don't know much about yeah it. look he has i'll just take a bit of a, a step backwards um as to why i think he had a bit of he had some reason to take aim at the media um, and I'm, I'm not excusing his behaviour now, but let's just take a step back to what it was in the lead up to the election when he won against Hillary Clinton. 
So much of the media in the United States is concentrated on the East and West Coast. Um, and too often, even though they're more diverse than, than, um, than Australian media, they weren't connected with and representative of, I hate to say, Middle America or Middle Australia. Mm. But geographically for the United States, it was. Mm. Um, and I think it's problematic and that's what it's bad for our democracy. And that's what I argue too with our media. It's not just about the colour of your skin or your religion. Often when you have different sorts of people in a, in, a, in a newsroom or at an editorial meeting, you have different lived experience and you have different connections to different community, including conservative and religious. So I come from a conservative and religious background. So, for example, during elections or during discussions about abortion or same-sex marriage, the, the, the views I hear are not progressive in a city. Yeah. The views I hear staunchly anti and not to say either way is right or wrong but i feel like for those reasons i have a bit of a finger on the pulse yeah. of the feelings of certain groups of you know um working class people in western sydney who are largely multicultural and often culturally conservative so the problem at that time is all the editorials and everything was hillary's gonna win hillary trump's a douche he's an idiot he he talks about you know grabbing women by the pussy and all of this stuff um and what they did was underestimate who he was appealing to. They didn't understand mm -hmm. his base. Perhaps they patronised his base. Mm -hmm. And I think that worked to, to his favour. And so yeah. when he came in, he was like, oh, they didn't understand you, but I did. So that was his appeal. What he's done subsequently is incredibly damaging to journalism. He doesn't give outlets. He doesn't give certain outlets any interviews. He just completely, I mean, which in a, in a democratic country where freedom of the press is one of the essential pillars of democracy, do you just go, I'm only speaking to Fox News or I'm only speaking to this outlet, but I hate CNN. Like, it, it's, it's ludicrous. Yeah. Um, but that's also helped disinformation spread when he continues to say fake news, fake news, they're lying, they're lying. That really discredits our craft. And in the past, probably over the past three years, I've even seen that in Australia, how much, um, how antagonistic people are towards us. So we're out filming something. Maybe we're not even filming. We could just be standing there and people lash out. They yell at me and say fake news. And, wow. Um, and, you know, report a bitch and this, that and the other. I haven't actually done anything. They don't even yeah. know what I'm reporting about. I'm not there. Just because I resemble mainstream media or they'll just come up and start hurling abuse. That never happened before. Mm. Uh, this distrust and hatred towards the, the press is, you know, is something that I think has really been flamed. Um, the fans have really been flamed um, by fans, sorry. The flames have really been fanned by Donald Trump. Yeah, that's really scary. All of this is making me feel like there's more polarization, more hatred and more divisiveness in the world. Um, on the class stuff, I think that is such a good point that you just raised about, um, I guess, the media in America neglecting uh, people that weren't on the coasts. Um, yeah. And then your report, Who Gets to Tell Australian Stories, obviously is about um, diversity of uh, cultural backgrounds and linguistic diversity. But do you know anything or do you have an opinion on, is there a problem with class diversity yeah, in the Australian definitely. media? Yeah, definitely. Generally, you have to be university educated. And generally, because we have HEX, most people can still get a university education and pay it later. That's about to change with arts degrees and comms degrees mm -hmm. getting a lot more expensive. The problem with, with class 
um, in the media is too often it's a issue of informal pathways. So it's not about applying for the job necessarily because often they're not advertised for. It's a lot of volunteer work. It's a lot of internships. And for example, when I was um, doing an internship, and interestingly enough, I think my first one was at the journalism union and I wasn't being paid. Um, how's the irony there? But I didn't have enough money to catch the train. So I used to uh, jump the the, fair, the barricade thingy, the ticket thing, to get through. Um, you know, and I don't encourage other people to break the law to be able to do an internship, but I've always had that insatiable drive. Um, but and if you hadn't broken that law, then maybe you wouldn't be here and you wouldn't have no, provided this that report is, that's so needed. Yeah. That internship led to something, another internship, but I did about two years um, of unpaid work. And so that meant I had to cut back on my shifts waiting tables while I was at uni. And this is the sort of thing you need to do because everyone needs, so, you know, you finish a, a, a medical degree, you become a doctor and you're, you get a place as a, a registry, I think that's what you call it, whatever it is. Um, but you get a comms degree and it's about as helpful as a piece of toilet paper unless you have industry connections and a lot of experience. Right. Um, and so for that reason, it's, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult to get into and it can really exclude people from uh, working class backgrounds. And then do you think that means that um, similarly to uh, the whitewashing being damaging for Australia's racism problem, do you think that similarly um, having a lack of working class voices is damaging yeah, for our... It's so, so economic, yeah. So, it all comes into play. It's all empathy, lived experience, and, you know, yeah. understanding issues, you know, just having those connections. Like, so when the school I went to uh, was pretty rough. Um, actually, you know, most of the guys in the year above me graduated and ended up leading out law motorcycle gangs. Um, <laughs> and so I, you know, ended up crossing paths with them covering stories of their crime. Um, <laughs> A lot of people lived in housing commission. A lot of people were from single parent households, you know, and all of that informed the person I was and my understanding. Of yeah. It doesn't make me a better journalist than, you know, Joe Blow who went to a sandstone uni in a private school. It just means that I can relate to people differently. When mm -hmm. I, if I am doing a story about single mothers, for example, I'll have a whole bunch in my phone that I know of. Yeah. Um, it just makes you more connected to the community you're reporting on. And unfortunately, totally. we're not often reporting on people who have their shit together. So, <laughs> um, so um, those connections and understandings are, are really, are really important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're running out of time. I really want to ask you about the age front cover the other day. I bought the age the other day because I walked into Seven Eleven and I saw it and it was a big advertisement for McDonald's. Um, Possibly we've already sort of discussed this or danced around this, but uh, what do you think about the age having their front cover as a big ad for Maccas? I'd never seen anything like that in my life, no, so it scared look, me. It's, it's, it's a terrible reflection of this absolutely struggling business model that is mm. news media. Uh, you know, the ABC has its own challenges because of continued funding, uh, funding cuts by the coalition government, but they're largely incubated and protected from commercial realities. Um, and so for Fairfax, which is trying to sell newspapers, and we know people aren't buying newspapers, that's being subsidised by McDonald's. Do we need, need wow. one of the most powerful institutions in the world advertising on the front page where we should be getting our, 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 our news Absolutely not, but it, it would seem that they don't have another choice wow. um, in this current environment. So it, it's hugely worrying. It also means that big 
corporations have more sway because they have advertising dollars. So for example, if Fairfax, and I've experienced it, I can't get into detail, but I've experienced it in a commercial world where our story I was working on was going to be bad for this outlet's largest advertiser. Right. Guess what the story? They killed I've, I have similarly heard of experiences of like this, of comedians talking on the radio and then um, them cutting to dead air because they told a joke about certain sponsors yeah. of, of the radio yeah. station, similar sort of thing. Whoever, so those large organisers, you know, whether they be uh, petrol, you know, oil companies, supermarkets, those really mm-hmm. large, uh, successful and powerful um, super, you know, the, the supermarkets, the Maccas, the Hungry Jacks, Coca-Cola, whatever it is. Um, and and let, let's say next week, so you you bought that that newspaper last week, was it? Mm, yeah. Let's say a journal in two weeks' time is doing an export, whatever, like in, yeah. in the Me Too movement or in Black Lives Matter, and it, it's found that the, you know, some senior executive at, at uh, McDonald's is a sex pest or a racist or a whatever or abusing his or her position for financial gain or whatever it is, how independent can that newspaper be? Wow, that's Ooh. frightening. Yeah, uh, good point. I didn't I'm even think of that. every advertiser that happens to them, but I can say from my experience it's happened where an outlet's largest advertiser got the shits yep. and, you know, with 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 redundancies happening every month at so many outlets with jo- jobs going and going, uh, uh, bosses are in a hard, they're in a hard place. They're yeah. like, do we run the- getting this advertising pulled? I'll probably going to have to fire another 20 people. That's scary. Um, it's scary. It's, it's, it's really terrifying. scary. Um, and it's not black and white. It, it, could, it be, could be easy to say, oh, but the merit of the story should matter the most. Yeah. In an ideal world, it should. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to me. I knew this would be a really engaging and enlightening conversation for me. And it absolutely has been. It's been so good. Thank you so much, Antoinette. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.